Hi, my name is Sarah Rachel Brown. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman, and I live in Philadelphia. I'm a contemporary jeweler. And like many others, I am an artist trying to make a living. On this podcast, I'm going to broach the subject of value. I'll be talking to studio artists and performers, educators and administrators, and anyone else attempting to combine their creative endeavors with how they get a paycheck. Hello, it's another episode of Perceived Value, and it's also 5.30 in the morning as I record this. I don't know if you follow me on social media, but last week I was hunkered down on my bathroom floor with my recording equipment because traffic outside of my apartment has been ridiculously loud. And well, the bathroom is the quietest spot in the apartment. So here I am recording peacefully before Philadelphia wakes up. I'm just really trying to avoid straddling my toilet to get a good recording. Today's episode was not scheduled to be published until next Friday, but earlier this week, I put out a challenge on my Instagram feed. Again, are you following me on social media? Because if not, you're missing out on a lot of things. You can find me at Sarah Rachel Brown or the podcast at Proceed to Value. Anyways, I put out this challenge that if I got 105 ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app, I would release an extra episode of the podcast in the month of September. And well, here we are. Not only did you get me to 105, you got me to 107, which also tells me that there are plenty of you out there that could do it. So thank you for those ratings. And also, if you haven't done it, will you do it? Because the ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app They really make the world go around for podcasters, which honestly, I find a bit obnoxious. But if you want to win, you have to play the game. So thank you for listening. Thank you for rating and reviewing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I also want to thank a lot of thank yous this morning. My patrons, Amelia and Rachel. Thank you for becoming my patron. You ladies are helping me pay for my gas to get to New York City today. I'll be recording an interview, and your support will also help me get the bagel I'm going to eat before I record that interview, and probably the countless coffees I'll be needing to keep me awake past 8 p.m. today. If you want to show your support for the podcast, become my patron. You name the amount, and it's really easy to sign up. Visit patreon.com slash perceivedvalue or perceivedvaluepodcast.com and click on my support page. One of my favorite aspects of the podcast is that to record an interview, I am given at least one hour of uninterrupted time with my guest. There are, of course, 24 hours in a day, so this one hour might not seem so significant. But when you're dealing with artists and professionals who juggle not only their careers and personal lives, but also their studio practices and countless other creative endeavors, an hour of quality time is a rare commodity. My guest today is a very busy woman. 
She's currently the interim chair for the Department of Craft Material Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University, and her students typically describe her as, yes, dedicated, but more so just amazing. Within the contemporary jewelry field, she is well known for her large-scale pieces that are created with discarded materials such as coffee cup lids. And beyond her day job and studio practice, she is one of the women responsible for having started Radical Jewelry Makeover, which she still finds time to co-direct. So yes, one hour is not a lot of time in the grander scheme of things. But one hour of uninterrupted quality time with Susie Gonch truly felt priceless. So please welcome today's guest, Susie Gonch. You know, it's yeah. just like, anyway, we have this, but nothing comes out of it. Oh, that's kind of, that's, uh, that's upsetting. Yeah. Um, but no, I'm feeling okay so far. How good. you feel? You good. look good. Our, our our levels look good. We're okay. fed. We have water. <clears throat> okay, I'll have one more sip. <laughs> get that last. Um, I'm gonna go that closer. frog out of there. Okay. Get that last frog out of your throat. Okay, I'm, I'm like I'm the one that's wiggling right now. Um, hey, Susie. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> we are recording. It's officially happening right now. Okay, here we go. You're doing great. <laughs> I'm, our, I'm pushing our comfort zone left and right. It's like, let's take a group photo. <laughs> let's put you on a microphone. Um, but everything's good right now. I'm a loud talker, so I always have to turn myself down just a little bit more. So, hey, Richmond is cool. Yeah, Richmond is a pretty cool place. You yeah. know, for a, a small city... There's a lot here, which I really am appreciative of. I mean, yeah. we have a great art scene. Yeah. We have an amazing museum. The VMFA is amazing. I'm going to try to hit the museum up yeah. tomorrow before I leave. Yeah. Yeah. They, it's a really special place. It's a, it's a hub for seeing such good art. Mm-hmm. And then we have this ICA that just opened. The VCU ICA just opened a year ago uh, in April. Institute for Contemporary Art? Yeah. Okay. And that's right down the street. The, yeah, I walked the strip, and there was a lot of buildings connected to them, too. Yeah, so the um, that building was designed by Stephen Hall, so you can't miss it. It's stunning. It's a stunning, beautiful building. Um, and they do rotational exhibitions. They're not a collecting museum, so it's different from the VMFA. Oh, that's cool. And then you, if you walk that strip, there's galleries all up and down. So many galleries. Yeah. yeah it's pretty fabulous. I mean, well, VCU has quite the reputation for the arts and the craft materials program. Is that the right terminology? Yeah, good question. Uh, you know, it's so funny that always gets caught in people's mouths just a little craft and materials, you know, a little <laughs> bit is, like that. Yeah. We're the the Department of Craft and Material Studies. I was close. Yeah, super close. Thank you. That's an A. <laughs> Thank you. Since <laughs> we're in an institution of learning. <laughs> oh, okay. How long have you been here? I've been here since 2005. Oh, so this is pretty much home now. Yeah, it yeah. is. Are you tenured? I am tenured. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. So it is home. Yeah. Oh, congratulations is. on that. Thank you. I mean, it does feel like an achievement. Well, yeah. They're like unicorns now, chasing the unicorns. It, it is a little bit. I think it's it's shifting and it'll continue to shift in that direction, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I think the way academia is changing, um, we have to evolve and adapt. Yeah. And so I'm not sure what will take the place of that to give faculty and professors... Um, 
a feeling of security to take risks with their research and stuff. But oh, I, yeah. but I do think it is evolving and changing in ways. And so I, I think it's, um, I don't, yeah. And I don't have, I, I can't forecast that. Yeah. So you guys, I'm here with Susie Gonch, um, who is well known within the metals and jewelry com- community and things like that. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's funny because I, you have been on my wish list for interviews. So I don't really get nervous, but I'm a little nervous with you. No. I know, right? Well, I hope that makes you. <laughs> and I'm you nervous f- too. I know. Well, okay. We're in it together. Oh, you guys, that's my, that is my thing saying my parking's up, but we have someone going to fill my meter for me. I feel like a queen. <laughs> I was like, Good. can you guys help me out? I know I'll be recording. Um, so my first time in Richmond, I'm really excited to come down here. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. And a big reason for coming here for this interview was I was asked to be a guest juror, which is anytime you get asked to do something like that is really cool for the Ethical Metalsmith student chapter is that committee committee um and they have an annual exhibition called so fresh so clean which we're not going to get into right now because we have a whole other interview devoted to that but that stemmed that conversation related to radical jewelry makeover Mm -hmm. correct Mm -hmm. which you started yes with christina miller so yeah yeah and that is related to ethical metalsmiths Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I know. There's a lot, a lot of committees, a lot of things. We'll hash that out. Okay. Great. <laughs> um, so you know, the premise of the conversation is going to be about radical jewelry makeover, and I'm sure many of you are aware of it. And if you're not, after this, you will be. And it's an incredible um, organization event project, is what you would call it. Yes. 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 All okay. of the above. All of the above. Yeah, yeah. Um. So you'll know exactly what it is after this conversation. But Susie, I have you on the microphone, so I really <laughs> want to ask about the path that you've taken to get to where you are, because you are somebody so valued within our field and the work that you do. I'm not sure that you actually sleep. Um, <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's possibility with how much that you tend to squeeze into your life um, from what I've perceived. So let's start by where did you grow up? Good question. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin. Is uh, that where Apple River is? Uh, no, the Fox River runs okay. through it. It's a. It was a paper town. Um, my pa- my parents were recruited to Appleton, Wisconsin, from Switzerland. So they. Uh, my family's from Hungary. Okay. And my parents left in 1956, and they ended up as refugees in Switzerland. And through uh, where they had employment in Switzerland, they were recruited to come to Appleton, Wisconsin in the United States. So they had an affidavit that brought them here. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I grew up. So you're first generation American, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Gaunch. Gaunch. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense now. Most people say Ganch because of the the change in spelling. I think yeah. I did used to say Ganch, and then someone's like, Ganch, dude. I was like, oh, okay, got it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and also, I always forget to give this insight. Do you mind if I ask how old you are? Yeah, no, I'm 48. Oh, really? Damn. You're looking good for 48. <laughs> Thank you. Um, when you said your parents moved there in 1956, I was like, okay. Um, so you grew up in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. What made you interest? What did you do for undergrad? 
Another good question. I have a Bachelor of Science in Geology. And so oh. I took I I took my first metalsmithing class when I was a junior in college in undergrad I took a class with Fred Fenster I needed a break from hours of looking under a microscope it was the year mm -hmm. I had sedimentology mineralogy and petrology this uh, three core sequence and um, my brother suggested he was like take a metal class it'll be a good uh, a good switch in your yeah. schedule because he took one he took it from Martha Glowacki who was teaching at UW-Madison at the time I don't know who that is but um, I do know Fred Fenster yeah and I took it from Fred Fenster Aww. and that's what changed the course of my my life forever oh Leslie Boy or not Leslie Noel talked me into taking a Fred Fenster class yeah she's like he's not going to be teaching much longer probably and my grandpa raised me so every time I called him grandpa so many times in that <laughs> class and he was just like, you know, I like it. And I was like, oh, I'm so, so sorry, glad. Fred. And he's like, that's fine. And he really, I think that like created this relationship with him throughout the class that I just cherish so much. Yeah. He's so cool. Yeah. He's a really special human being. He also would leave the torch running and like lay it in his lap. Mm -hmm. like, uh, yeah. I actually, <laughs> <laughs> so I have a little bit of a bad habit with that too. I like to leave the torch running. So yeah. I have stands that I you know that you put I, them on. I don't put it in my lap yeah <laughs> but I totally know that <laughs> or you know in the crooks of his in the crook of his elbow you know like oh yeah, yeah. I've seen him do that too Hiroko <laughs> Hiroko Yamada was there to uh pick up the <laughs> right. the torch that was on and turn it off like she was like his just like watchdog like okay Fred yeah Hiroko can read his mind at this point <sighs> I think they're amazing. Yeah. Um, anyways, I sidetracked it. So you took no, a class with yeah. him. Yeah. So I took a class with him, and um, and then in my senior year, I was applying to schools. I thought I would go to graduate school for geology, mm -hmm. and I kept coming back and sitting in his office and telling him how unhappy I was. And finally, he looked at me and he was like, "Why didn't you apply to my program?" What? And I was like you can go to school for this like you know I knew that yeah. there were classes but I didn't actually understand what that meant yeah you know and um so he explained it to me I was past the deadline mm -hmm. I had only made five pieces <laughs> you know so I, yeah. you know I had a portfolio with a lot of detail shots yeah um I finished my degree in geology. Fred accepted me to the program. Wow. <laughs> and I finished my degree in geology. I went out to Utah for a mapping certification. Mm -hmm. And that's where it really sealed the deal for me that I had made the right decision. Because out in Utah, I was along the Wasatch Front. And every day, I was dropped off in a 5 by 5 plot of land. So each week, I had a different 5 by 5 plot. And mm -hmm. they dropped me off at 7.30 in the morning at one location and pick me up at another at 5.30 in the evening. And I traversed the land and I had to build these maps that assessed the geologic history of the area in order to speculate, you know, what the mineral potential was for that land, right? Oh, okay. And so yeah. I was thinking about that, that, wow, I, I love this, but I can't actually, I can't see myself doing this. I can't see myself selling maps for mineral potential for mining rights. I just can't oh, do that. yeah, because you knew what was coming then. Yeah, so I knew what was coming. Mm -hmm. So it, it actually uh, reinforced that I had made the right decision that, you know, while I loved my degree, I loved what I was doing and learning, I, I, it wasn't a path that I could actually see myself 
participating in. Yeah. So I I went on and and did my MFA in metals and jewelry, metalsmithing, mm-hmm. and it inadvertently participated anyway. I mean, it's a different yeah. conversation, but um, it was something I realized later on. You know, I had this holy shit moment. Yeah. Um, that was a little heartbreaking for me. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you find that you're, and I know this is so silly to say, but I've, my family never made me conscious of the environment or my impact on the environment or recycling or things like that. And it seems Mm -hmm. like for you, it was kind of innate early on. Like what, were your parents a part of that? Did you, like, it just kind of was there. Yeah, it was just a little there. I mean, I think, uh, you know, my parents, you know, in the 80s, the recycling movement just started, mm-hmm. you know, and so it was this really new way of thinking about waste. Mm-hmm. So my parents participated, but not, they weren't gung-ho. Um, yeah. The focus of my family was kind of different, just being a first-generation American and um, now looking back, seeing the world through my parents' eyes, uh, you know, I understand what they were thinking about maybe a little differently, like things were a little different, but... Um, It was more my brother. My brother also has a degree in geology. Is he a younger brother or older brother? He's older. Are you guys really close? We're really close. Um, He actually dropped out of school for a little bit, and we finished our degree at the same time, which was kind of amazing. Um, And so it was more maybe his influence and also going to school in Madison. I mean, Madison Mm -hmm. has a very special campus, and so it was a, a way to really learn so much. I mean, part of going to school mm-hmm. is actually not just going to class. I mean, you're learning yeah. how to be a citizen. Yeah. Right? And discovering who you're going to be. Right. Yeah. What kind of political person are you going to be? What kind of opinions do you have? How to how to exercise those? Yeah. Um, how to be a contributor to yeah. society. And so I, you know, Madison was really formative for me in that regard. Um, and so I think it was more that. Yeah. Um, and it evolved slowly, you know, and I can't yeah. say I'm a perfect person in any way. I mean, I, we're all polluters, so I, yeah. you know, just to kind of say that, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I f- relate to that to where one of my studio mates, she's an activist, like she is mm-hmm. a through and through activist. And she had been going to um, protests since she was little because her mom was an activist, Yeah, you know, and I'm, I envy that in her where it was like instilled in her in such an early age. It's never too late to, to start caring or, but um, I just, yeah, I was interested about that. Yeah, I know. I, I the first time I went to a, a, a political protest wasn't till my 20s, you know, until I, I yeah. So I, yeah. it was something really foreign to me. Yeah, I think I went to my first one like four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But it is never too late. Never too late. <laughs> So when you went to undergrad and then you went to grad school at Madison too? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you pay for your own schooling? I did. I yeah. So uh, my parents made it really clear. Uh, so I'm broadcasting this little. Uh, <laughs> um, when I went to school for art, my parents were really upset about it. Oh, I could see that. They Definitely. didn't move to this country. For me to do that yeah you know they didn't come here so that and to start all over to um relocate so that their child would be to quote my mom in the gutter 
I don't know what that means, but in the gutter, right? I, that I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to support myself, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what that means. But um, so my first semester of graduate school, um, I went home for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and my mom confessed how upset she was about it, and told me she wouldn't help me. You know that they yeah. had decided that they couldn't help me with school, and so I went back to school. Um, I applied for financial aid. Mm-hmm. I um, and I worked. Yeah. So I had the benefit, though, of in-state tuition. So at that time, mm, yeah. in-state tuition was it such an amazing deal? Yeah. You know. So I left school with uh, student loans, but um, it wasn't so significant. I mean, I, yeah. I had to stop working after a while. I worked from five thirty in the morning until one thirty. Um, during the weekdays, I worked coffee in a shop? coffee shop. Yeah, <laughs> um, I can make a good cappuccino. Um, and I was falling asleep in class. And Fred said to me, "It's either me or your job. You choose." Yeah. And so I had to quit my job and rely on financial aid exclusively. So I took out my maximum loans to pay rent and materials and everything, and eat, and eat, and you know all of the important things. Yeah. Um, and, um, but I also did something. I invested, <laughs> I invested some of my student loans while I was in school. In investments? I did. How the hell did you even think about that? I, I don't know. I, I read about what? it in the back of a magazine on my way to Hungary with my dad. Are the you infl- kidding me? No, no, no. So this is like, yeah. I mean, just to be transparent, because I know this is your podcast. That's wild to me. What'd you invest in? Um, well, I I won't say, but I okay, because uh, now it doesn't matter. But I yeah. but at the time it it did, and so six months after I graduated, I paid off my student loans. Holy crap! Yeah, that's Susie. That's amazing. I've never heard anybody tell me that story yet. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's why I'm telling you because I I feel yeah. like if it's valuable to anybody, well, it really I is. I would love it to be valuable for somebody because it really it helped me. I I don't consider myself financially savvy. I have a lot of fear about money, just like many people. Mm-hmm. Um, as an artist, I don't know that I'll ever feel like, even I have a secure job, I don't know that I'll ever feel like, wow, is this enough? Is it enough now? Yeah, you know, I know, Was that right? good enough? I'm not sure, you know? Yeah. Um, and and I, I know where that comes from. It comes from my family, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but so at that time, it was the savvy thing, you know, I just lucked out in some yeah. way. I mean, in some way it's luck, in some way it was just me being aggressive and assertive and trying something, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it worked out, you know. That's, congratulations. Yeah, and yeah. There, you know, for those listening, that's like, maybe I should think about investments. I inherited investments from my grandpa. Um, yes. So they're sitting there and I, you know, I think it's like $7,000, but I'm hoping by the time I'm 60, it'll be, yeah. A hundred or Absolutely. plus. Absolutely. Well, you know? and also, I I mean, you know, it's never too early to start saving for retirement. I mean, there's IRA, there's, you know, if you if you make mm-hmm. a couple extra thousand dollars a year, put it in an IRA. You know, like, yeah. there's all these things to do. I don't know if a- anybody else knows about this, but I think it's Mr. Money Mustache. Do you know that website? He gives yeah. all of this advice that's pretty amazing. Mr. Money Mustache. Yeah, Mr. I I'm pretty sure him. it's Mr. Money Mustache. I could look this up. <laughs> She's Googling sure. it right now. <laughs> I think it is. Um, I've also seen apps where it's like investment apps. Absolutely. Where you can just even you guys, even if you just invest like $10 into something. And I think it's worth it. 
Yeah. Here I'm looking it up right now, which is really a waste of time. <laughs> no, no, it's never a waste of time. Yeah, here it is. It is Mr. Money Mustache. Okay. Okay, everyone, go straight to Mr. Money Mustache because mm-hmm. he and his wife figured it out. So they retired um, in their 30s. Okay, I need to look at Mr. Money yeah, Mustache. Yeah, so he gives this whole outline of, you know, what's enough. I mean, for me, with all of my neuroses about money, I, I, yeah. I haven't really quite done the, <laughs> the I mean, numbers, I obviously but. have a lot of <laughs> things to, about money, too, that mess with me. So, yeah. Yeah. So you go to grad school, you pay off your loan six months afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you want to do? Did you always want to be an educator? That's a really good question. I didn't I didn't really know. When I applied to graduate school, my first plan and impulse was, I'll just do this for a year and see, see, <laughs> what, see what happens. Just give it a try. Yeah, I mean, I really yeah. did. I was like, I'll just try this. Yeah. And um, three and a half years later, I got my MFA. Okay. It took me longer. Okay. I was a beginner student. Oh, you really were? Yeah. Good on you, Fred. <laughs> He took a really big risk on me. Oh, my gosh. Um, So it took me three and a half years to graduate. I know now that can also be really difficult. Like here at VCU, you have to to finish in two years. That's it. You Mm. know, but at the time in Madison, it wasn't that way. So I think things have really changed in academia in other ways, you know, other than what we just talked about with tenure. You know, it's just evolving. So I... I thought that by the time I was 35, I would like to commit maybe to teaching. And and the reason I thought that is that I had taught for the Madison Area School District while I was a student. Mm-hmm. I taught um, fourth through eighth graders. I taught these enameling classes all summer. I taught that age before. It's pretty fun. It's a fun, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I really liked it. I also... I realized, at, oh, after school, I also taught a, a short stint at Whitewater, UW-Whitewater, Okay. Um, before taking the residency at Penland School of Craft. And so I had this taste a little bit for teaching. Yeah. And I realized that I was a little opinionated about teaching because I mm. wasn't a great student. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't until I took classes with Fred that my light bulb in a class kind of went off. And I sort of understood, and things came naturally to me. Otherwise, I was the student in academic classes that had to read the text three times, take notes each oh, time, um, get yeah. into every study group. Um, you know, I, you know, like I really, I just yeah. struggled. And I really struggled. I failed out of the University of Iowa my first year, yeah. and I tried. Yeah, I'm not good at testing. Oh God, if you've taken the ACT, ACTs, I got a 21. And yep. I was embarrassed. I had a 21 on my ACT. High you five. did? <laughs> oh, my God. I had the lowest one of anybody I knew. And to this yeah. day, I can't believe I just said that on the podcast. Y'all, I am I know. embarrassed <laughs> of that number. That makes me feel better. I honestly don't even know what it means anymore. That's the yeah. thing. Like, that's why it's easy for me to admit it. Because what it does meant it a mean? Lot then. You know? It meant what schools I was going to get in yeah. and scholarships I could get. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I think there's these measures that make you feel... Um, empowered or not inadequate right? and or inadequate right yeah. or that maybe academia is not for you or going to school is not for you but I, I just think that there's so many different types of learning yeah. um, f- formats and learners right mm-hmm. and so when I realized that um, something happened to me in a class mm-hmm. I realized wow maybe I could actually help other people 
-hmm. because I think everyone has the potential to learn. Everyone has the potential to succeed. It's such a big deal to me. We all think differently. Mm -hmm. And how do we capture everybody and make learning accessible? How do we make it equitable? Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, my God. Susie's made me tear up. <laughs> Sorry. I know. But like, it's so true. It's so lovely to hear somebody in such a position of yours talking about that. Because yeah. um, academia is not cut out for everybody and they don't make it easy on people. So No, I think they make it seem like it's not cut out for everybody. It is cut out for yeah. everybody. I mean, Sorry. I, yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel so adamant about it. I think, yeah, I mean, I failed my English class in high school. Mm-hmm. I wasn't supposed to go to college. I was going to go to the community tech program, you know, like, yeah. what, uh, here I am. I'm, you know, we're sitting in my office in a university. This and is it's amazing. it's a big office, you guys. <laughs> it's a very big office. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I, so I don't take it for granted that if, yeah. if I can help, I'm, that's, it, it feels like an imperative to me. Yeah. Um, I want to believe in, ac- in academia, you know, yeah. I want to believe in education. Yeah. Oh, God, love you. <laughs> so um, so after you graduated, you applied for the Penland residency. I did. How old were you when you got the residency? I was 20, se- 27. I think I was Dang, 27. you were young. Or 28. Yeah, I was. At that time, I was the baby, you know. Yeah, because that's usually like a core fellow age, kind mm-hmm. of. And then... Gerilyn Vierden came in during my time as a resident, and I think she was the baby at that time. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so um, it's a three-year residency. Yeah. I Actually, maybe I was 28. Ooh. I mean, you're in your 20s. That whole time period is like a whole thing. Because I finished in two. No, I started in 99. Okay. I'm backtracking. So I started Mm. in 99. Okay. So I was 29 because I was born in 1970. And I finished in uh, 2002. Yeah. So you went to the residency and that's probably where you dove into your work. Like what'd you do during there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, um, you know, my mission at that time had been to get my studio practice legs yeah, figure out how to yeah, be an everyday artist. And yeah, so I, I wanted gallery representation. I wanted to exhibit my work, and I mm-hmm. wanted to teach. So those were my three main goals. And so I think, yeah. you know, when you apply for the Penland residency, you sort of have to have a plan about, you know, what are you going to do with your time there? Um, so I set out to do that. And by the time I was done, I had five galleries representing my work where I rotated work. I applied to exhibitions. I mean, we were just starting internet. I mean, it was dial-up, so I always had to bring a book with me and something else to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And, um, and I taught. So I taught at Penland. I also, every summer, went to Oxbow and taught there. Oh, yeah. Fred also hired me back. So I was hi- I was hired to teach the summer programs in, in uh, Madison. Oh, okay. Where I would teach beginner through graduate level courses all at once stacked every day oh good lord and so what was cool about that is that it gave me this opportunity to be malleable and flexible so that by the time i finished doing that i felt like i could kind of walk into any studio assess what the studio was and figure out what i could teach 
you know, it made me really fast on my feet to, yeah. to have all of these opportunities. Which is important because a lot of studios are not equipped that well. No. And so what are you going to do? You know, like yeah. even at Oxbow at the time, the first time I taught there, um, there weren't even really tables and chairs. No. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, you know, they were bringing them in the second day. I like, and I know what Oxbow is, but I bet a lot of listeners don't because I wasn't familiar with Oxbow until I lived at Penland. Um it's yeah. a craft school, or is it kind of like a summer camp? It's a summer art program that's affiliated with SAIC. Okay, yes. Yeah, school so the, the School of the Arts yeah. Institute of Chicago. Okay. Correct. And yes. they, so a lot of students, I don't know if it's changed or how it's changed. I've heard it's it's evolved a lot. Um, yeah. I haven't been back since 2006 now, but mm. um, they, students often, it's the majority of the students are from SAIC. Mm-hmm. They take credit and the credit transfers to their degree. Oh, uh, that's nice. Yeah, in, in SAIC. And but so, you don't have to be from there to go there. No, you don't have to be there for, mm-hmm. to go there. Um, and certainly not everybody was from there. Yeah. Oh, good, because that would be boring. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was majority, but not n- not everybody was from there. And they have um, the studio that has the um, jewelry metalsmithing classes was really just a concrete slab with a roof over it. Oh, yeah. And then they would roll out the craftsmen. And that mm-hmm. had all the tools in it. And we would, uh, every summer, at the end of summer, we would have to put the lithium on, wrap them, put it all back in the craftsman, and put it away. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, what's interesting about Oxbow's, I've heard that it's a little bit more conceptually based in their classes versus mm-hmm. what you would get maybe at, like, an Aeromont, Haystack, or Penland. Well, it depends, yeah. But, yeah. yes, and an easy answer, yes. I mean, they have... Um, also, what they offer is really different there. Yeah, um, people should look into it if they want it's something different. Absolutely. They have, yeah. um, just to let everyone know, they have residencies that are fabulous. Mm, okay. Um, and I think they start at three weeks. They also have a fellowship. Some of the students stay for the whole summer. They work for the school. So it's similar maybe to Penland's core program, but it's yeah. only over the course of one summer. Nice. They have glass blowing. They have glass casting. They have ceramics. They have uh, blacksmithing and then jewelry and metalsmithing. Mm-hmm. And, or at least they did, I should say, I should preface and say, again, did. I don't know that if they still do, like what yeah. their offerings are. Um, they have uh, paper making. Textiles. Textile, some textiles. Probably sculpture. I'd be shocked if they didn't have some kind well, of Well, it's sort of embedded in, All in the things. different studios. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, they had a really healthy printmaking program as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it's probably pretty there. Cause oh, my God. It's gorgeous. So the where it's located is right on, on Lake Michigan. And it it was a hotel that actually went out of business because it was an, the, an oxbow lake formed after the dunes shifted oh, on okay. the uh, Lake Michigan shore. And so it, it locked in this uh, little river inlet where a boat would drop off people for the hotel. It was a summer uh, re- resort. Oh, funny. Yeah. And so these professors purchased it from SAIC and they turned it into this program. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Oh, I need to have a whole episode on that place. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it would be worth it because some of the buildings were also designed by architects. So, like, they have these all of these places for the faculty to stay, and it, it's that pretty really funky. Yeah. yeah. So let's scoot along to 
you your practice your studio practice mm-hmm. i saw you speak at um what was it we were both there ecu oh my goodness yes (laughs) and it was really interesting to get you to talk because you were presenting on radical jewelry makeover um and you talked about how your studio practice started inform the materials you were using started getting you thinking about things is that correct am i off yeah well maybe ask that Say it That's again. That's not the right way. Yeah. That's not the right way to say Just that. Just to understand specifically so what you mean. So after Penland, how did you eventually get involved with like ethical metalsmiths? Mm. Let's go there. Great question. Okay. So after Penland, um, I moved to San Francisco. Okay. And out there I I taught adjunct at a San Francisco State University and the Academy of Art University. Oh. I also worked for a goldsmith, a fabulous jeweler named Petra Klass. You worked for Petra? Yeah, I wow. loved it. It was amazing. It was one of the best experiences ever. I'm sure you that I learned a lot. Skill set is Holy incredible. Cow. Yeah. I mean, she's incredible and her work is incredible. Um and I also did my production line. I was represented by Velvet Da Vinci out there, and they were so helpful and nurturing to me. Wow. Um, and R.I.P. I can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And um, I was going to go off on a tangent, stop myself. Um, <laughs> and then I continued to teach workshops uh, at places like Mendocino Art Center, Penland, yeah. Oxbow. So that kept up. And... Um, Eventually, I applied for a job at Virginia Commonwealth University. So in 2005, I came here oh. to Richmond. And I mean, you and then eventually I applied for a job, but that's a huge deal to get a tenure track position. It was. I mean, I sort of, I, I'll never forget the day I put my application in the mail. It was, <laughs> you know, it still slides. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So I'll, I'll never forget walking to the mailbox and walking with Jared, my husband, and he was like, so what are your intentions with this application? Like, <laughs> if you get it, are you going to go? And I, I didn't, hadn't even thought about that. I was like, I'm just throwing my name in the hat. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I... I Might I, as well give it a shot. Yeah, it was a little, you know, I... At that time, too, I still wasn't really using the internet like I do now like I would never yeah. do anything now without researching it really well right yeah and but at that time I was like oh I see this job opening I saw the ad so I put my name in the hat and got a call for an interview yeah you know and I flew out and um I had only applied to a few jobs prior to that and had first round interviews and um so and then got this you know and that's wild it was pretty wild yeah you know I was really happy out in San Francisco but I realized that I had reached this point where I wanted to make a a real commitment to an institution and to have that institution make a commitment to me yeah you know like I wanted wanted, security well it wasn't even so much security but rather I wanted to try things I wanted you know as adjunct you get handed a syllabus and they say do this Mm -hmm. and you go do that and then you go home Mm-hmm. You don't, you're not, um, you're contributing to the culture at large, but you're not shaping it in the way that you might, if you could mm-hmm. shape the curriculum, if you could say, well, I want every student in this program to learn X or Y or yeah. Z. And I realized I had reached that point where I wanted, I wanted to try things. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. because when you get like tenure, you also 
it's understood that you need to be in your studio. Is it? Absolutely. Is it like Madison? Jeffrey Clancy is trying to explain this to me, where it's like a research school. So he gets funding for his studio practice. Right. And so it, I think that happens in different ways at different schools. And so yeah. at um, VCU, um, 40% of my job description mm-hmm. is dedicated to research. And 40% is to teaching. And mm-hmm. 20% is to service. Okay. When I'm faculty. So, I mean, I mean, this might be a little confusing, but right now I am not faculty. Yeah. I'm chair of the, of the Department of Craft and Material Studies and also area head for metals. That sounds like a lot. It's a little bit much right now, but as interim chair, I have agreed to do this position for three years, and then I'm gonna go back and be an ordinary faculty that's in charge of the metal area. Okay. And so I'll, I'll just talk about it in terms of being yeah, regular you faculty. Break that down for yeah, me. What does that mean? Chair is a totally different. Like right now as chair, 80% of my job is, is um, service. So you're not really teaching a lot. Yeah, I mean, this semester I am. I'm teaching two classes, which is a lot uh, for an administrator, and then also doing research, and because I'm wearing many hats as interim. Yeah. But under normal circumstances, 40% of my job is research, so I'm expected to be in the studio when I'm not here. Research, a.k.a. Making things, uh, yeah, working things. Yeah, yeah, working in the studio. And so, yeah. and working in the studio doesn't just mean working in the studio. It means outcomes. And so what are the outcomes that um, count, right, in mm. an academic institution? And so um, that can be exhibitions. That can be writing. That could be this interview. Oh, yeah. That can be... Um, ECU. ECU speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of those get a little bit um, mixed up with research and service. And so like giving a presentation can also be seen as service or jurying an exhibition or curating an exhibition. So what is the service to your community, right? Mm-hmm. And so service can be internal to the university, like serving on a search committee or serving on, anyway, yeah. other committees. I get that. And then... Um, but then there's uh, outside service. So like me serving on the board of ethical metalsmiths is part of my service to oh. my uh, part of my job description. And so every year I write a, a work plan in the fall mm-hmm. saying I'm going to do these things. I project, you know, I have yeah. these 10 exhibitions. I'm going to jury this exhibition. I'm going to do this competition, yeah. write these grants. You know, so I have a list. Yeah teach these classes and then at the end of the year I write a report did I do those things okay and everything I do has to be backed up by the proof that I did it yeah so like this podcast yeah it'll be on the web Ooh. right it'll be yeah. a link and so it counts right and then I get a grade oh you're gonna get you're getting graded on this yeah so I don't know in <laughs> other schools but we have to self-grade and then we also get a grade from our supervisor whoever supervises so now as chair I write the annual uh, merit feedback for all of the faculty in my department oh and, so you grade them yeah in some yeah so in that regard I do that and then yeah. the deans of the school of the arts do that for me and so there's this Mm-hmm. whole chain of reporting 
that's wild. I didn't even know about that. Yeah. Well, kind of. My friend Emily Cobb has got a tenure track yeah, she's position. She's on her way. So she's starting off and she was trying to explain it to me. And I was like, girl, I don't even know what you mean. And I was like, it just sounds like, a, you know, like my perception was like, oh, you're tenured. That just means you teach full time. Like I have no idea about all these other things that you have to do. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, misinformation about what it is to get a job in academia, you yeah. know, because there's just a lot. We do a lot. So then with your work with Ethical Metalsmiths, was that as a result of you getting this teaching position and trying to seek out committees and things for your community service? Not, not really, actually. I sort yeah. of fell into it. Um, I had the opportunity to curate a year-long series of exhibitions in 2007 at Quirk Gallery. Oh, okay. At their old space, they had this uh, little space called The Vault, Aww. And it was an old, where this old uh, vault actually was in this space. I mean, it was a huge, um, it was maybe half the size of this office. That's not very helpful for the listening audience, but. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, the office is, si- is uh, like a nice size of a dorm room, probably like a little bit bigger. Yeah, so it was maybe like 10 by 10 okay. by 12 high ceiling. Yeah. And I had the opportunity to bring in artists throughout the whole year. We had a year-long catalog. Oh. And I invited Christina Miller to come and give an exhibition. Mm-hmm. And she asked if she could come and research. And Christina is one of the co-founders of Ethical Metalsmiths. And I knew what she was doing. I had seen her work. She's a graduate of ECU. Okay. And she had made some of the most incredible MFA work that was all about hard rock mining and what was going on in uh, the mining industry as it was related to what we do. Well, which I'm sure immediately caught your attention because yeah. of your undergrad degree. Absolutely. And yeah. so, and I had met, actually, I met Christina at Penland. Oh. And so we uh, were friends through that. And she came and did some research. And um, we were talking about, you know, we were just de- dreaming of projects. And I was confessing some frustration with teaching and realizing that part of teaching is is wasting yeah. wasting material and then it sort of led me down the spiral of waste you know what are we doing in mm-hmm. this industry you know yeah. how are we contributing to waste um and environmental degradation right and yeah. so it was it was through conversations that we dreamed up radical jewelry makeover and she decided to do her exhibition as the project rather than having a solo exhibition where she was going to make work. And so we used uh, the VCU Metals program as the pilot, and we um, ended up having this incredible whirlwind experience that was so positive that we decided to continue. And the second one was at her institution, which was Millersville University in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. And so in 2007, we did it here, and then in the following year, we did it there. So it just grew out of two friends admiring what each other was doing and creating this project. Yeah. Love the name. <laughs> well, you know, at that time, it was, what was the, um, uh, that sh- that TV show where people could do, were doing facial uh, reconstruction. Oh my God, the, I love that, you know that show. That extreme Makeovers. Yes, it was yes. the Extreme Makeover. <laughs> I, I was so into that show. I thought it was the weirdest thing it's ever. It's so, so weird, but That's yeah. how the name came. Oh, us. that is really funny to understand that. <laughs> so the first time you do this, 
Um, and explain to me necessarily what it meant to do Radical Jewelry Makeover. Like, what was that work that you made for that show? For the first one? Yeah. So for the first one, and, and actually, I mean, it's not so dissimilar now, but for the first one, we did a call to action donation drive in the city of Richmond. Mm-hmm. And we asked people to, to go to their jewelry boxes and mine it for their unwanted jewelry, their broken broken pieces, their mismatched earrings, that old class ring that you're not going to wear anymore. Yeah. Give it to us. Mm-hmm. And we used that material to work with students to remake it into fresh 100% recycled material, right, mm-hmm. in jewelry. And during that time, we we taught them how to uh, refine it and make ingots. We we talked about best practices, like how can you use costume jewelry um, when you can't heat it, yeah. right? So we we had to tackle all of these problems that we didn't even know we would have. It was a, an amazing problem solving opportunity. Um, beginner students were partnered with advanced students. Like it just the studio was on fire for. 24 hours a day for a week it was incredible exciting also note like not just relying solely on glue oh yeah at that time actually it interestingly the first one Mm -hmm. we did welcome glue okay and we did use um uh smooth on products like casting uh resins yeah and because we were also super influenced at that time, Ted Noten's work was just coming oh, out yeah. to the United States, right? And so mm-hmm. those cast bags, right, that were yeah. so incredible. We realized quickly after that that, mm, is that best practices? I'm not sure. Like, how do you yeah. get, it, it made us start questioning, how do you get that material out of the resin when it's time for it to be reused in the future? How do you recycle that? So mm-hmm. it, it really started this ongoing conversation for us that, okay, if we're going to do it again, how can we do it better? You know, so one of our yeah. missions was how could we learn from each project? Yeah. You know, so certainly like there's regional differences, like each community has different uh, needs that they want to tackle in the project. Mm-hmm. Um, besides the basic format of the project. But yeah. then there's also ways that we kept wanting to learn, learn, you know, yeah. and do right by the material. You're always growing and always... Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's an imperfect evolving. system. So we're always, we admit that we're putting ourselves in a position of learning. Yeah. We also admit that <coughs> for every um, installment that we do, there's a collective uh, expertise that comes to the table. You know, somebody's Mm going to know how to do X. Somebody's going to know how to do Y. And so if we can create an atmosphere of sharing and community and trust, people will share that information. And so we can be um, learning while we're also providing things that we've learned. Yeah. And so the first project happened and then just naturally somebody was like, noticed it and was like, hey, do you guys want to do this again? Or did do you want to seek out other opportunities? Well, we wanted to seek them out, but then we were also getting invitations. That's which was so cool. Incredible. So yeah. um, we did the first two, and then um, also things started evolving too because we started having deeper conversations about um, what was going on in the industry. So maybe inviting guest 
presenters, maybe inviting, you know, screening films. Like at that time, Our Land, Our Life had just come out, which was Mm -hmm. this incredible documentary that'll break your heart. It was about the Western Shoshone and their fight for land rights in Nevada. Mm -hmm. And so we could start using it as a platform to educate the community, not not to impose our opinions on the community, but to say, hey, if this is a fun project for you, you also might want to know about these things yeah, that are a, going on. Yeah, there's more to it than this. this. Right. This is what's driving this. Um, and so then we started getting invitations, like um, Mike and Elizabeth from Velvet Da Vinci invited us to do it in San Francisco. And so... We took on the Bay Area. I mean, the whole Bay Area. We had six institutions. We had... Oh, good Lord. um, Yeah, let me see if I can... I'm going to try to remember these off the cuff, and I think I can do it. Okay. We had CCA. Mm -hmm. We had the Academy of Art University. Mm -hmm. We had um, (coughs) City College, where Suzanne Pugh was. was, Yeah. Is. Was. 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 I think. Yeah. I think. Mm Mm-hmm. I heard that. Hey, Suzanne. Yeah. Hi, Suzanne. Um... And we had Richmond Art Center. We had the the Guild, the San Francisco Guild. And then we also had, wasn't it, uh, Scintillant was participating as well. And I might be forgetting one other place. That's a lot. It was a ton. And we tried to go to every program. So we traveled our way around to every program. Mm-hmm. We went out there. And this is also what kind of established what we would do you know how we would do it so we are figuring out as you go absolutely so we had a kickoff we started having terms for things so we kicked off the whole event by having a big presentation um that was hosted by the academy of art university all the schools came together it was a big time for all the school students to meet each other the faculty to meet each other so we realized one of our motivations was to build community like how could jewelry build community yeah right because we're all in our isolated studios i love community i know that's how it works yeah right um, it's like what you were talking about with the JV Collective earlier. Yeah. You know, how does community build strength in numbers? It's an mm-hmm. absolute necessity. Yeah. And so we started having these kickoffs where we would have these big events and schools would then pick up the material that was donated and sorted and assessed. You know, so it was all ready for the schools to go. And we can go back to that in, in a bit oh, with, yeah. with how this project works. But yeah. um, so we did a donation drive. You know, we had the kickoff. And then the schools actually had a month to work on, on making pieces. So we embedded it into the curriculum. It was part of their grade. There is so much planning that goes into this. It's huge. It takes us about a year to do a big project like that because mm-hmm. we have to get the schools involved early on so it can be in the project. Yeah. Um, The schools have to, in some cases, they have to apply for grants to participate. We have some fundraising to do. Yeah. Um, So with that project in San Francisco, we flew out twice. Mm -hmm. And uh, we flew out in the front end. And then we flew out in the back end. When all of the work was done, it had to be juried. It had to be documented. It had to be um, cataloged, Mm -hmm. tagged, and then installed at Velvet Da Vinci. And then there was a huge opening. And one thing we also learned is that the openings uh, became this incredible opportunity for the artists who made the work to meet the donors. 
so we wanted yeah we wanted everyone to feel part of this inclusive radical jewelry makeover community so the Mm -hmm. donors participate in part by donating but also they're welcome to come to the kickoff they're welcome to come to open making sessions and so we also realized that we wanted the schools to have open sessions so that students could make Mm -hmm. together you know from different schools and so we started bringing past participants from other schools along with us to new installments and so we were fundraising to bring students and do um, hosting home hosting stays you know like all of these ways that we were trying to just shift the way things were thought of and in making you know and this whole time it's you and Christina Mm -hmm. organizing it making this happen yeah you're both educators so you both have so this kind of was like your studio practice for a while. It was, well, it was always only half of my studio practice. That was one of the things that was a little hard for me. I couldn't let go of my studio practice. You so. didn't want this to take over fully. Because I, I could see how this could like very much so take over yeah. everything. Absolutely. And sometimes it does. I mean, there's periods of time when it does. But yeah. I, I still can't... Uh, I still can't give up my studio practice. You know, I yeah. think my um, the sun rises and sets there for me. I love how yesterday there was a little confusion where we thought I thought the interview was today, and you and somebody thought maybe it was on Friday. And I remember you saying, "Well, I'm really happy because today is my studio day, and I'm very protective of that." And I was like, "You go, girl." <laughs> like, yeah, like I just—it's yeah. the one day Friday in my schedule now is the—it's the only day of the week that I have set aside in the yeah. studio and I um otherwise I'm squeezing it in here and there you know like this morning before we met I was yeah. in my basement on the lathe I was like oh I got 2 hours I I could I could finish this project up pack it yeah you know good for you yeah. so in a timeline that first one I believe you said in 2007 was when you were asked to do that so that's when Christina and you kind of created this not knowing the intention fully with what it would become yeah what year did the san francisco happen because i feel like all of a sudden it just steamrolled snowballed so much yeah it did um i want to say san francisco was in 2009 okay so i had a few years we did one a year like we realized we couldn't do more than one a year Mm -hmm. um it was only actually last year that we did two for the first time in a year um and it, it was it we divided and conquered, which you know was different because Kathleen is with me in this way that we can do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, otherwise, we did it once a year. So after San Francisco, we went on to Australia. That's wild. Okay, so also yeah. financially. Yeah. Um, how are you doing this? I mean, I understand academia. You kind of touched on that, but truly, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. So. Um, we do it in a variety of ways. I mean, um, the way the project originally started is a little different than it is now. Like mm-hmm. now when we do a project, the proceeds of the project actually help feed the next project. So it's, okay. seeds, it's seed money for the next project. And um, and that's really important. Yeah. Um, also, schools get grants. And so last year, one of our big projects we did was with Baltimore. And so yeah. the epicenter was BJC, Baltimore Jewelry Center. Mm-hmm. And we worked with Towson University and Montgomery College and uh, local professional artists mm-hmm. and um, and students from BJC. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, each school contributed what they could to the project. And also BJC got this really large grant, a substantial grant. And so, so you have like a year to plan for this. Yeah. Okay. And, and so grant writing can take a while. Grant writing can take a while. Yeah. Uh, truthfully, we started talking about the Baltimore project at the SNAG conference in Asheville. Okay, so that was a while. It was a while ago. And so it gave Shane um, the opportunity to really target a grant that Mm -hmm. she wanted, and that really helped us. Um, Sometimes we're doing it more on a shoestring, and sometimes we actually are a little, uh, it's a little easier. Yeah. Um, With uh, certain schools, like Australia, when we did it in Australia, they flew us there. which was really important otherwise we wouldn't have been able to do it yeah because it's over probably over a thousand dollars a person just to go there exactly and then there's housing and everything like that but Mm -hmm. we're you know we're willing to share beds we're willing to crash on couches um you know we've done all of the above yeah yeah and it's like the overhead is really not a lot in terms Mm because materials are donated right materials are donated and also you know over the years hoover and strong the refinery that's here in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. They've been really supportive of us. And so um, they have supplied us with solder and different uh, materials. Rio Grande has supported us. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and also local jewelry suppliers have donated things to us. Okay. And so we, you know, we try not to use anything from outside of that donation pool, but solder is really important. Some things that are make it easier to do something are you know conventional findings sometimes are great and so we will sometimes get those donated as well yeah um and then the studio spaces are at the organization so it's not like you're renting space for anything yeah so we're not renting space we haven't had to figure out auditorium space and rent that yet yeah um we often get sponsorship like in san francisco um the academy of art university got a donation for the um reception after the kickoff you know which was fabulous and so uh we really rely on the generosity of community and also, I mean, you and Christina, and now it's Kathleen Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Y- you have a tenure track position. Yeah. So you're not making your living off of this by any means. Have you ever no. paid yourself anything from this? No. Um, and actually... That's a big uh, thing to know. Yeah. yeah. So um, proceeds, originally, uh, all of the proceeds of the project actually went into Ethical Metalsmiths. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are the education wing of Ethical Metalsmiths. When did that partnership happen? Immediately. So, oh. yeah, Christina Miller as co-founder of Ethical Metalsmiths with Susan Kingsley. Okay. So they founded the organization in 2004. Okay. And in 2007, when we realized that we had this potential to use Radical Jewelry Makeover to spread the word. Be an educational tool. Yeah, it became the educational tool of Ethical Metalsmiths. Oh, so it's just, oh, that's so mm-hmm. interesting to know how that evolved. Yeah. Yeah, because it just seems so established, but it's kind of interesting how it kind of just fell into place a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny to think about it in hindsight that, wow, it seems so linear, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. I mean, we didn't, yeah. it did wasn't like we made this business plan and there it was and we did this thing. You know, yeah. it was more like, hey, do you want to do it again? You yeah. know, <laughs> and people, and supply and demand, you know, yeah. and that's interesting to me. Yeah, and then so we eventually realized that we were getting more invitations than we could 
uh, possibly say yes to. Yeah, I would want you to come. It's exciting. Yeah, so we decided we authored a toolkit. And so now we have this toolkit that has a memorandum of understanding that, um, or a contract that, you know, really says what we'll provide, Mm -hmm. um, how we'll provide it, what the institution needs to provide, and um, how it works. There's a financial breakdown, there's... um, an instruction sheet for everything, essentially. Wow, that's a lot of work that went into that too. Yeah, and that took a while. And for that, actually, you know, we did get a little bit of grant money. So again, you know, Jeffrey Clancy explained that as a research institution at Madison, he gets funded by yeah, his institution. Does. So we at VCU, we have grants that we can apply for that are really competitive. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Radical Jewelry Makeover has gotten a couple grants, and so that has helped us in some ways to to do some of the things that we needed to do, like author a toolkit or do some travel or make a catalog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so to give somebody an idea, because I'm sure some people are going to be listening, like, I want you to come here, especially internationally. It's good to know Absolutely. that. Like, hey, international listeners, I know you're out there. Um, what kind of funding do they need? Like, is it baseline like you have to have $5,000 to do this? Do you break it down like that for them or is it a little, yeah? Mm-hmm. We do, I mean, yes and no. Like yeah. it's easy to say yes, but it's also, there's no right answer on it. So mm-hmm. if a school has no funding, yeah. um, we work with that. I mean, the first and foremost rule we have is that if you want uh, if you want access to the toolkit, you have to become an institutional member of Ethical Metalsmiths. Oh, and how? What does that typically cost? Um, I knew I should have looked that up. I might get this <laughs> wrong. Oh, I'm really embarrassed. It, no, I, that's it might fine. be two hundred and fifty dollars. You know what? Actually, I saw that online because I was looking to be a member of Ethical Metalsmiths. Isn't it two fifty? It seems like a little bit more actually, because I was surprised that. A independent jeweler. Um, independent jewelers are a little bit high. Yeah, but mm-hmm. then the institution's higher than that. But I mm. think it w- was somewhere around that. She's looking it up, you guys. I know. Seat of our pants. Bone. Love it. Um, so that's good to know. But I also love the fact that you're willing to work with people and there's flexibility within that and ways to make it happen. And I guess that means that it might not happen when they wanted because it might take a year to get that funding in place, but. Right, so once you become a member, yeah, we send you, well, if you're an institutional member, you'll get a letter from Lucy. Oh, okay. Who you'll be talking to. She's gonna be my next interview. And um, here, I'll look that up later. This yeah. is so rude, sorry everyone. No. Um, you will send you a, 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 a letter, and in that letter, it, it gives you ways of how do you begin to participate, and one of those things is Radical Jewelry Makeover, and oh, so if yeah. you're interested, you contact us, um, and you can contact me directly, you can contact me through the website, you can, so Radical Jewelry Makeover has its own website as well, Yeah. and so people contact us, and then um, I send them the MO, the memorandum of understanding or contract, it's the first taste, you yeah. know, if they want to move forward, I'll send them a link to the whole toolkit and they can start to analyze it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of schools use the toolkit, um, well, everyone uses it differently. So you can yeah. use it exclusively and not have much of our support. Okay. Or you can use it and maybe we wouldn't travel there if you don't have funds to bring us out. So we ask that you pay for the flight mm-hmm. and put us up. Yeah. You know, like a vi- we would be, we're happy to be visiting artists at the school. 
Oh, yeah, because they usually have the funding for that. Yeah, and so usually, you know, we get put on the roster for visiting artists. And so we'll go in and, you know, ahead of time, we'll plan a kickoff. Yeah. We'll plan um, the donation drive. The donation drive will happen before we come. And it'll end when we come. And then we do a a couple days of sorting the material, assessing it, getting coupons to the donors yeah, so that they can get a piece at the end. I like that because I donated it to Baltimore Jewelry Centers once. So I got like a 25% off coupon or something. Yeah, that's good. I know. I didn't get to use it. Well... (laughs) shoot that means you don't have a piece of rjm jewelry i know um we'll have to work on that okay thank Um, you yeah and um and then we run the kickoff and after the kickoff everyone takes the material that's been sorted and so we give a smattering of every categorized bit of material you know so there's everything from mardi gras beads down to precious material okay yeah. yeah yeah i just it blows my mind that people donate gold Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, because Leslie Boyd did Baltimore jewelry. She was working at Towson at the time, guys. And she had enough gold to make this, like, beautiful Mm -hmm. gold bracelet with a charm. And she ended up buying it because she wanted it. Yeah, sometimes people do that. You know, so we, one of the things that we find is that people donate jewelry for a lot of reasons, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so jewelry is sentimental. It means so many different things to us, right? And we invite people to tell stories about... The jewelry they donated. And I so did. yeah, we get to hear. You know, yeah. there's emotional weight mm-hmm. in these objects. Yeah, and so we get donations of gold, maybe a wedding ring, maybe mm-hmm. somebody's parent died, and it's such a burden that it makes them feel good to put that jewelry to use. Oh my God, that's what I did. I donated yeah. a lot of my mom's. Yeah, and so some of it has gold in it, and and you know, yeah. I think actually. A lot of people donate a little gold or, or you know, a, a handful of silver things. And all of it combined makes a nice bit yeah. for us. You know, so it's not like somebody's donating a bag of gold to us. It, yeah. I mean, if anyone has one, I'll take it. But <laughs> I, you know, like if somebody, like one time actually in the New Mexico project. Yeah. This was one of the best things. Like this one, it was a huge earring. I mean, literally like a one by one uh, gold clip-on domed soft square earring with little couch diamonds like a pillow. Imagine <gasps> a square pillow <sighs> with um, maybe three millimeter diamonds in it. Um, yeah. And we had a volunteer appraiser that day and somebody came, this appraiser came to me and said, you know, I estimate that this is a $10,000 earring. And I was like, oh. And he said, and it was in a bag of costume jewelry. I don't think they knew what they had. And so, yeah. you know, we feel like shepherds of the material, too. So, you know, I, I gave a call on the phone number. You know, there's a donation yeah, form. That's so I you do that. called the donor. And the, there, the man on the other end of the phone was speechless for a second. And he said, oh, yeah, you know. Our mom died, and we didn't know what to do with this jewelry, so we just packaged it all and sent it to you. And I was like, well, maybe you want this back. You could, you know, make sell something it. for your kids. You could sell it. You could do something with it. And so we popped it right back in the mail to them. I did. I remember I wanted to ask about that because I yeah. find that a lot of people don't understand the value of what they have. Yeah. And I love that you guys are transparent about that and are like, 
Yeah. yeah. And interesting, you guys have a volunteer appraiser. So how many years or how many projects did it take before that came into play? Yeah, that's a good question. In New Mexico was our first. We realized that we just needed it because we, yeah. so I'm a metalsmith, I'm a jeweler, but it doesn't mean I know what costume jewelry is. You know, there's yeah. so many um, famous labels of costume jewelry. I don't know, you know, yeah, so is that important or is it the reuse value? So the reuse value of costume jewelry is obviously far less than the brand. Mm-hmm. And so we really have to start thinking, or we had to start thinking about where um, where does the value lie? And in our project, it's the reuse value. And so we want somebody to appraise the work so that we have a clear understanding of all of the material that's been given to us so we Mm -hmm. can best use it for the future. And so an appraiser is really helpful. Like we, you can't always tell what a diamond is unless you have the kit to test it, right? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to do that in my job at Barry O'Neill all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we do our best. Yeah. And does that mean that mistakes don't happen? Totally. You know, like I've pulled pieces out of people's hands. Like I'll never forget here actually in Richmond um, in the 2014 project, one of my students literally had just cut a jump ring open on this piece. And I was like, wait a minute. Let me see that. Mm -hmm. And it was an original mid-century Ramon Pooch. You know, and so I was like, I'll take that. You know, and I (laughs) repaired it. And so now, you know, we, we don't have... Uh, somebody to sell on a secondary market, but we have it. You know, like yeah. I was gonna say, do you have this like insane collection of like? N- it's not insane, but we have it. You know, like I have a Thomas Mann. What will you do with um, this? You have a Thomas Mann. Someone they're just okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. We have, um, yeah, we have a few things. And so, what do you think will become of those? I'm not sure. I mean, I would love that. If somebody, well, shout out, if anyone wants to help us in selling on secondary market, we would love it. You know, like it would be this way for us to actually shepherd the material, the work into the right hands. You know, I mean, some of it, it does feel like a huge responsibility. I mean, I have this, it's broken, but I have this incredible brooch that is, has a braided um, twist of hair and it's all this it's such exquisite high carat gold work it's this beautiful mm-hmm. oval brooch you know and, and the and the lattice work that covers the hair broke yeah so they donated it Aww. and it's just in my collection you know it's something that I show people like these are things you want to look for in oh the, so now you'll use them as tools for when you're showing oh yeah. yeah that's smart yeah 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 but at initially like you know, we have uh, an altered Claire Sanford piece, you know, know that, that is, is a jeweler. And yeah. and so we have a few things, you know, we have a, somebody cut apart a Boris Bally keychain yeah. piece. I don't think Boris would mind. No. He I mean, he's recycling it. in and of itself, so it's yeah. continuing the chain. And so, um, you know, so a few things did slip under the radar, but actually became these really great pieces. Yeah. So when does when do we admit or acknowledge that our work needs to get, go back into the remake pile? You know, it becomes one of those conversations. Well, it's only significant if you know who it is, right? I find that mm-hmm. a lot about artists where you're like, how can you not know who so-and-so is? And somebody's just like, I don't know. Right. They're like, I, mean, one I know day, Tiffany. Right. And one day we're going to be the, I don't know. I mean, even now, right yeah. now, we're the I don't know. You know, and that's the truth of it. And so 
when our work doesn't contribute to culture, mm-hmm. then maybe it's time to use those materials differently. Yeah. How much... So I love how one project will be the seed money for the next project. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an idea of like what kind of money you actually raise? Sure, sure. Yeah. So one thing that maybe people want to understand too is that so we collect the donations. Mm-hmm. We put it in the hand of hands of jewelers to remake it. Yeah. And during that time, we talk about best practices. We 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 teach, yeah. right? We contribute. We ask them in return to make a piece for the project. So they're mm-hmm. donating their skills, their talent back to the project mm-hmm. in exchange for working with us, right? Yeah. So it's this give and take. Mm-hmm. So we don't pay the artist for their piece. Yeah. And that that then gets sold. We try to make the work really affordable. Mm-hmm. And so a, a project could earn $3,000, let's say, or it could earn $10,000. So we ask in the memorandum of understanding when we partner with a gallery or an institution, we have to find a gallery. Yeah. And we ask that gallery to waive that 50-50 split. And so we ask them to give a lesser, take a lesser percentage. And so we've done everything from 40% to they say nothing to 10 percent okay yeah um i don't think anyone has ever done nothing you know it has to be also beneficial like i don't know how comfortable i would be with that because if everyone is working so hard on the project it has to be in some way it has to give yeah it has to give it has to spread around yeah that's good yeah so it doesn't ever make i mean it's not like we're it's it's never a cash cow truthfully yeah. but it does um it it always is guaranteed to make something so a small one will reap like three thousand dollars yeah i can honestly yeah that's really like maybe a base that we always say mm-hmm. um do you know what the most you've ever made like was there one time where you're like oh my gosh yeah the most we've ever made was gross like thirteen thousand dollars wow yeah that's incredible yeah yeah and that's you know often it's um one of the things i've i've noticed is um when we have a really wide range of artists that are participating it often will um help the project you know because we want beginners but we also want really seasoned artists to actually kind of look through the lens of RJM when they're making in the studio. Like, how can it actually influence professional jewelers to think differently about the materials they're using? Yeah. And so we we try to recruit uh, professionals in as well. Mm-hmm. And that will also help uh, the range of work that we'll be selling in the exhibition. So what's next for RJM? Where are you going next? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So I know you're going to be interviewing Kathleen Kennedy, my new co-director. And she's working really hard on this one project. So I'm just going to say she'll tell you about it. When did Christina step down? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Christina stepped down after the New Mexico project. So around 2010-11. Mm-hmm. And the next one after that was in uh, at Appalachian State University in Boone. So I did that on my own. So mm-hmm. I was on my own for many years. Okay. And Kathleen joined last year. 
um, when I took on this role as chair, I just realized I just I really couldn't do it. Like RJM was dormant. Boundary boundaries for yourself. And and the project is really too big. Um, Kathleen was with me since the beginning, so she was in the first project here in Richmond as a student. Okay, that's cool. And she did some killer work as a student. And then I asked her to be in the artist project, which she'll tell you about it. So the RJM artist project is a really special thing that we're doing. That's similar but different yeah and she'll explain how um and that project is is going to be curated into sparkle plenty at quirk this fall and so that's exciting she'll tell you about that yeah but so um uh, you know knowing how enthusiastic she was about the project and also that she came here and has been teaching with me now for a couple years i was like hey we're in the same place you love the project you support it you speak so well about it Mm -hmm. why don't you join me yeah you know, and so she picked up that that challenge so quickly and yeah. started running with it so quickly. And she really so last year, the second project we did was in Wisconsin and she took it on. You know, all I had to do was show up at the end. She was the beginning mm-hmm. and I was the end. And she did an amazing job. I like how you're kind of, you know, setting it up to be able to continue once maybe you can't. Yeah, because yeah. did Christina start to turn her focus more so on ethical metalsmiths fully? Because I know she's pr- she's still a big part of that, right? Well, she's a big part of it, but <clears throat> around that time, Christina stepped away from academia and decided to take on ethical metalsmiths and be the director. You know, yeah. and just really focus on it fully and see where it might go. Yeah. And so at that time, we were fiscally sponsored by Earthworks, which is a really large nonprofit. They're a, a um, everyone should just Google Earthworks. Mm-hmm. They started the No Dirty Gold campaign, oh, okay. um, which is such an in, important campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we built, as a having a fiscal sponsor, we weren't a standalone 501c3 nonprofit, but we knew we wanted to work towards that. And so Christina, as director, um, we formed a futuring committee, which was a precursor to the board. Okay. We started doing other programs like studio practice working group um, and um, other ways to reach out to community and do research. And so slowly we formed this board. In 2014, we had our first board meeting. I think your pop filter is touching your mic. There we go. Oh, is that better? Yeah. Sorry, guys. The pop filter started touching the mic. Sorry. No, I'm neurotic. It's okay. No, that's good. I don't even know what that is, but okay, yeah, here we go. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, she stepped away from Radical Jewelry Makeover so that she could fully focus on ethical metalsmiths and moving the organization in the direction that it needed to go. And so now it's a fully standalone 501c3. We have a new website. We, you know, we have all of these programs that I know Lucy Derrickson is going to be talking to you about yeah. with the student committee. That's so cool that it started from two friends talking about one exhibition opportunity and it's this now yeah you have to be so proud that's so many years that you've put into this I am really proud I think one of my frustrations is is that it it, to me it never feels enough you know like I wish um one project a year doesn't feel enough um you know reaching okay we've reached over a thousand people there's thousands of pieces of jewelry out in the world being worn telling the story of of why it's important to do this but I, I think the urgency, um, the imperative um, is greater than that. You know, like yeah. if we were really thinking about changing the way we teach jewelry making, 
you know, yeah. what would that look like? Like, what would it look like if the first day of class you had to actually dig into a pile of donated material and figure out how to refine it? Yeah. What if you had to pull that wire or refine that sheet? You that know, would like, really change the way that you approach it completely. Absolutely. You so know, much harder. What if you had to collect your dust and really weigh it? What if, mm-hmm. you know, like, I just think that there's different... I don't know. I, I don't mean to sound frustrated or anything, but I just... That's fair. I feel like um, additionally, you know, costume jewelry is is the biggest piece of the fashion pie, right? And yeah. we are not making a dent. We're Who cares about us? We're this small project. Yeah. You know, and I feel like it has this potential to be much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, when I when we first started, I mean, my dream was to somehow to march into Avon and other, you know, Manel, you know, and, yeah. and really talk about costume jewelry. How could we be more responsible? Mm-hmm. And important. we haven't figured that out. I mean, I will say that uh, we have some thoughts on that. I can't I can't think. I'm knocking on wood because I gotcha. can't jinx it, but I, I have some thoughts on how to evolve that. But I, or even how we buy jewelry, you know, like yeah. I, it makes me think about that. And I have some ideas, and I'm really eager to try them. Yeah. Because this isn't enough. Yeah. You know, like every, I, if this is tied to the heart, if jewelry is tied emotionally, yeah, to our hearts, how can we actually make a difference with it? We can. Yeah. Susie, we need people like you bringing this to our attention and saying it and being frustrated and wanting more and pushing others to think about it. Yeah. It's important. It feels important and it also feels like, oh, really? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I I guess I think about it all the time. I mean, I I feel this imperative to, commu- to contribute in some yeah. way, right? Mm-hmm. To be my best. Mm-hmm. Does it work? You know, I, I know I'm an idealist, right? I'm, I'm. This is not <laughs> not Susie Gonch, the realist, right? Yeah. Um, but it does keep me thinking and keep me working, and know? it keeps yeah, and you keep evolving. Yeah, and I keep evolving, and it obviously has changed my studio practice and um, what I make, why I make, how I make it. And how? You know. Who knows how much? How many students you've impacted, and what? You know, it's you're. It's like the food chain. You know, yeah. like you're starting here. You don't. You you haven't even seen what your full impact has been because it'll evolve over time. Right. I I honestly yeah. haven't. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's also one of the the um, faults of the project. We don't do these follow up surveys. You know, they feel like <laughs> we don't do all this stuff. Like we don't. Yeah. You know, like did you learn something? We don't do these before and after things. Like did yeah. you learn something? Will it influence you? How will it influence influence you? You know, it's one of the things that I think we need to get better at. And I think Kathleen will be <laughs> helping like, me with that because it's yeah. not the part that I. I'm not. I'm not here to gather data. Well, you don't have the time or the capacity. You're a two-woman right. team. Yeah, and I. Um, but I realize increasingly in this world, it's this thing that you're supposed to have, right? You're supposed to have these statistics. Yeah. And so it would. I, you know. So I don't know how much we've influenced people, truthfully. But you do have nice statistics on your website about like the weight of right. jewelry and whatnot. You guys check yeah. out the description of. 
in the description of the podcast, I'll have the website and everything leaked. And I really encourage people to check it out. Those cool. those statistics that you guys have are amazing. Awesome. Good. Yeah. Yeah. We just this year we um, rebuilt the website, and I'm really excited about it. Looks it. good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have this amazing person helping us with the website named Tina Marie Lowe, and they have been an incredible collaborator. Yeah. Yeah. Susie, thank you so much for talking yeah. to me about this. What I find exciting is that you have made it accessible to whoever wants to have it. The toolkit, I think, is really important. If someone listening is like, well, I think I would want to bring it, but I don't know if I can bring take on something of this size or event of this magnitude, get the toolkit. Do something small. You could be at a community college and get a toolkit and just base a class around it. Absolutely. I mean, even what we did at um, ECU, just bringing materials, talking about best practices and having a little competition, the work was astounding. I mean, it's, uh, I've been blasting a little bit about it on Instagram. It's been killer work. And so Mm -hmm. even in a small way, that was just a a one hour conversation, right? I even got to sit in on for 10 minutes and I felt excited and empowered in what you guys were talking about. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to learn, obviously, but there's so many ways to participate. Mm -hmm. So you're open-minded. You're always growing and you're always evolving. Yeah. I I want somebody to teach me always. (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. That's a really good, I mean, yeah. I love that concept. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, you shared so much. And you guys, yes, I'm going to give so much information about this. And feel free, Susie has said, reach out. Um, yeah. If you get in touch with me, you can get in touch with Susie. And we'll definitely give you all the information we can regarding it. Because if you want RGAM at your school, it can be there internationally, locally, etc. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. All right, everyone. This has been another episode of Perceived Value, the podcast broaching the subject of value with artists. And as always, thank you for listening. Perceived Value is recorded and produced by me, Sarah Rachel Brown. If you love the podcast and you want to show your support, become our patron. Visit patreon.com slash perceived value to learn more. Or check out our website at perceivedvaluepodcast.com and click on the support page. As always, thank you for listening.